The following message is from Temple Bible Church. For more information about the church and its ministries, visit www.templebiblechurch.org. Teaching reveals wickedness in the people of God. 
and so often for us as well, the Bible reveals God's holiness and then it exposes our sin. And the same way what's happening here is God's Word is doing what? Showing God's holiness. And in light of His holiness, the sin is revealed in the people. And so Paul Tripp, he has a great quote on this. When sin is exposed, you will run toward confession and forgiveness or self-righteousness and self-justification. This is what we do. We're confronted by our sin, and oftentimes, I don't know about you, but for me, it's just make myself look good in light of what's happening and make myself not appear as bad as the person next to me. But here, the Word of God is just taking over and the sin is exposed, and we can also see Ezra's response here. So let's look at Ezra uh, chapter 9, verse 1 through 9. After these things have been done, the leaders approached me and said, The people of Israel, the priests, the Levites, have not separated themselves from the surrounding peoples, whose detestable practices are like those of Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. Indeed, the Israelite men have taken some of their daughters as wives from themselves and their sons, so the Holy See has become mixed with surrounding peoples. The leaders and officials have taken the lead in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this report, I tore my tunic and robe, pulled out some of the hair from my head and beard, and sat down devastated. Verse 4. Everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered around me because of the unfaithfulness of the exiles. While I sat devastated until the evening offering, at the evening offering I got up, from my time of humiliation with my tunic and robe torn, that I fell on my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God, and I said, My God, I am ashamed and embarrassed to lift my face toward you, my God, because our iniquities are higher than our heads, and our guilt is as high as the heavens. Our guilt has been terrible from the days of our fathers until the present. Because of our iniquities, we've been handed over along with our kings and priests to the surrounding kings. And, priest, uh, and, and for the sword, captivity, plundering, and open shame as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, grace has come from the Lord our God to preserve a remnant for us and give us a stake in this holy place. Even in our slavery, God has given us a little relief and light to our eyes. Though we are slaves, our God has not abandoned us in our slavery. He has extended grace to us in the presence of the Persian kings, giving us relief so that we can rebuild the house of our God and repair its ruins to give us a wall in Judah and Jerusalem. Let's take a moment and pray. God, your word is heavy today. It's full of a call to repentance and confession. And I pray, God, as a people, that your Holy Spirit will speak to us. That we won't hear these words from your word and the words from my mouth and, and hear them and, and get offended or, or maybe just try to make ourselves look better. God, we pray that you'll help us all to be convicted where we need to be convicted. And not just be convicted, but also to be changed as a result and act in repentance. God, help us to learn from the lessons and the failures of your people. Give us wisdom today. So you notice the list of these countries in verse 1. It's not an uncommon list. We have the Canaanites, Hittites, and so on. And this list is actually throughout Israel's history. If you go and research, you can see through the Pentateuch that there's these, these countries that come up 
looking at Exodus 34, 11 to 16, you can see these countries, they're known to worship false gods, they're known to do evil deeds, they're even known, some of them, for child sacrifice and other things like that. And so here we have this list of countries that are called to stay away. But I think it's important for us to note that this passage, and I, I feel so horrible I even have to say this, but in, in history, this passage has been used as ammunition for racism. This, this passage has been used to say, well, these are a pure people, these are a culturally uh, better people, so you have to stay away from these others, which is totally false. And you do a simple study in history, you can see some of the greatest leaders that we've seen in Scripture actually married uh, people that were not part of their group. Moses, right? He married a Midianite. We have an entire book of the Bible devoted to Ruth, a person who was a Moabite, who married Boaz. There's others in history and scripture that we see this example and what happened in those cases where those women recognized God as God, as Yahweh, and they embraced God and they became part of the people. So it's important for us not to read into this this way in the horrible sins of some that have gone before us. The Israelite people here in Ezra, they've done the opposite. They, they hadn't... Uh, called these spouses to embrace God as Yahweh, they were embracing the wicked pagan cultures. And so it's important for us to know that. Also important for us to notice the leadership has taken the lead in this city. It wasn't just a few people here and there. This is their own leaders showing them that this is okay. So what was Ezra's response? You look here, I mean, man, it's a devastating response in verse 3. There's no sugarcoating here. It's, it's not, we can't miss this. He, he falls down. He tears his clothes. He pulls hair from his head. And he even pulls hair from his beard. I don't know about any of you in this room that have either have facial hair or, or I can grow it. Uh, but if someone pulls the hair on your face, I remember even my kids, I'm holding them, you know, being a good dad, you know, holding them, playing with them, messing with them. And then all of a sudden, someone like, uh, no, one of my sons decides, like, uh, that longer hair on my face is, like, going to be a jungle gym for him, right? And he's going to swing from it. It's just intense. And I know if you remember, like, don't tell me about pain, chill out there, right? Uh, but it's painful. I mean, that pain just shoots right through your legs to your toes. And uh, it's intense. But here he is. His pain and his passion were so strong that he even pulls air from his own face. It's just this devastation of this sin that's taken place. It's also important for us to see his passion. He fell on his knees, but he was brutally honest before God. It reminds me of the psalmist who wrote and just poured out their hearts in honest confession. He just laid it out there, not not filtered. It was just, here it is. And it's devastating. In verse 8 and 9, it's, it's powerful to see even uh, a word that's often reserved for the New Testament mentioned twice in verse 8 and 9. Grace. And he pours this out. He says, you've given us grace. Now for a brief moment, grace has come from our God. And then in 9, though we were slaves, our God has not abandoned us 
our slavery, He extended grace to us. So we see Ezra remembering God's grace in this moment of, of the repentance that's needed and the sin of His people. I love that statement where He says, Though we are slaves, God has not abandoned us. I think about the people of Ukraine now that maybe even earlier they met as a church earlier today. They're ahead of us, and so they've already met, and they've probably could echo this. Even in war, God has not abandoned them. Even in their struggle, God has not abandoned them. You, in your pain, God has not abandoned you. And so we can take comfort in whatever his words are saying are these simple words that God is not abandoned. Look at verse 10 to 12. Now, our God, what can we say in light of this? Is his response. We've abandoned the commands he gave through your servants, the prophets, saying, well, man, you are entering to possess an impure land. The surrounding tables have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness by their impurity and detestable practices. You notice it wasn't just something small here. The end to end of this nation was filled with wickedness. So do not give your daughters to their sons' marriage. Don't uh, or take their daughters for your sons. Never pursue their welfare or prosperity, so that you will be strong. Eat the good things of the land and leave it as an inheritance to your sons forever. So here we have it: this command, this specific command that was said: Do not take wives and husbands of these pagan people. It's important for us to see this command that's given. It reminds me of the command that. Paul gave in 1 Corinthians when he's talking about not being yoked together with an unbeliever. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 14 and 15, God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Try then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. It's also interesting to note here in verse 12 that uh, Ezra commands them not to seek the prosperity of the, the people. It's interesting because it might remind you of another passage in Jeremiah where the people are actually called to seek the prosperity of the people that they were exiled to. So it's important for us to see that um, this isn't a contradiction. I know some people, skeptics, are always looking for contradictions like, should we seek the prosperity or not? Is this a contradiction? I would say no, because in this instance, the wickedness surrounded the entire country, and they had to be set apart, or this marriage would basically literally destroy the people from the inside out. This marriage would wipe them off the face of the earth. But in this instance in Jeremiah, they were called to make a difference and bring people to the light of God's Word. So there was a different command given. So we have this command given, we have this challenge of interesting uh, comment. James Hamilton is commentary on Ezra and Nehemiah. He says the Israelites have done exactly what God told them not to do. They have no righteousness to plead. They have no excuses to make. There is nothing they can say to defend themselves. I don't know about you. Maybe you're really good at confession and repentance. But for me, I have never been good at it. And I probably still am not. Maybe a little better than I was at 13. But not much. So I remember even having a teacher uh, of mine when I was in middle school saying, Timmy, you're, you're destined to become a lawyer because you're always figuring out ways to get out of trouble. Or if you don't get out of the trouble, at least you make the people that you were with in the trouble look to be worse than you. And so somehow it's like I could skate on by. 
it's the lessons you learn as the youngest of four. You know, it's just how it goes. And so, even in my my immaturity and in my lack of understanding what was called of me, I was often consumed justifying my behavior. But I missed what was really needed, which was just a humble, honest confession. I sinned against you. I did what was wrong. And instead, I just made it look a little bit better. But here, as it's like, no, this is straight up sin. Verse 13. I love this statement in verse 13. Look at this. After all that has happened to us, because of our evil deeds and terrible guilt, Though you are God, look at this, have punished us less than our iniquities deserve and have allowed us to survive. What a statement to dwell on right there. Punished us less than our iniquities deserve. The reality is, some people say, oh, we got grace and we're good, right? We got grace and there's no consequences. Well, that's ridiculous. Sin brings consequences. Sin brings punishment. But we can be thankful, like Ezra, that we don't get punished as our sins deserve, are deserving. And there's a song we're going to sing at the end called God is Love by Chris Renzema. And uh, there's a statement, a line in the song that's a great one for this passage. It says, Because He is good and He is God. What I earn is not what I got. He is just yet also kind. What I deserve is not what I find. Wow. So thankful for that. It reminds me of Romans 6.23. Some of you might know that one from way back. I'm going to memorize it as a kid. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. We have a gift. You, in this audience today, may not know Jesus, and you can know that although your sins are many, just like mine, and they separate you from God, you can know that he doesn't punish you as you deserve. He sent his son Jesus to take that punishment to give you new life. I love his honesty and openness here. Ezra, in verse 14, he, he says, We're here before you in our guilt. In verse 14, shall we break your commands again? And in the marriage of the peoples who commit these detestable, detestable practices, when you become so angry with us that you would destroy us, leaving their remnant or survivor in 15, this is powerful. Lord God of Israel, you are righteous, for we survive as a remnant today. Here we are before you with our guilt, though no one can stand in your presence because of this. He acknowledges we can't even stand in your presence. You are too holy for this. You are a holy God. And we can't stand in your presence. He's not hiding. He's not pretending. He's just talking, confessing. And it's a powerful thing to notice the grammar used here. And I, I'm not an English teacher. Uh, I butcher grammar often because I'm from Philadelphia. And we say things like use guys and, and stuff like that. Uh, so I'm not an expert. But I can see here this grammar to help us understand. He's saying our and and he's including this first-person plural, right? Even though he didn't commit this specific sin, he's acknowledging in this moment his wickedness and his sin as a leader. And he's saying, our iniquity, we stand before you, we're in our guilt. See, Ezra remembers history. He recognizes the many times that Israel has failed God. And he acknowledges it. He points some out, and we can even maybe a little study can help us see. I, I looked at some of the failures of Israel. Here's a few. 
or maybe well, not a few times, a few a few times, uh, lacking faith before the, uh, the crossing of the Red Sea, complaining over the bitter water at Merah, complaining in the desert of sin, collecting more manna than they were supposed to, attempting to collect manna on the Sabbath, complaining over the lack of water, engaging in idolatry of the golden calf, complaining at Tabera, complaining over the lack of food, failing to trust God and enter the promised land. There's ten, and there's many more. But before we go and roast the Israelites too harshly, I think it's important for us to kind of take inventory. You see, we've allowed ourselves to listen to, to be part of, and adopt cultural narratives that erode our sense of compassion and our understanding of God's holiness. It handicaps our ability to love our neighbors, and it hinders us from believing that God means what He says. So instead, we buy into a culture that tells us, well, this uh, isn't quite as bad, or this is different because it's a different culture, and we embrace this thought process, maybe even just in the back of our heads, to the point it starts affecting the way we read God's Word and take in truth. And we start to compromise truth because we let culture speak into truth instead of letting the truth of God speak into culture. And we let culture become our guiding light instead of letting the very Word of God guide us as we interact with culture. It flips. So before we dog them and roast them about all the things they've done, maybe we can embrace some of these things and take them for what it's worth. Notice when I read these, I say we, because these are the things I was convicted of uh, throughout the week. We submit that modern version of Israelites' failure, failures when we are not satisfied with God's provision, always wanting more. We are discontented with the life God has blessed us with, living in envy and jealousy of others. We explore other options since our husband or wife isn't measuring up to our standards as if we were the catch of the century. We ask more of those around us than we willingly give of ourselves. We live as antagonistic snipers on social media aimed at anyone who disagrees with us. We continually chase after goals and priorities that have no lasting benefit or impact. We taunt our responsibility to raise our children in the admonition and encouragement of the Word. We pursue a future spouse to meet our needs and our desires. We are hypocrisy personified as we claim the name of Jesus while lacking the action and love to prove it. And we lack a continual attitude of worship for the God who gives us breath. This is us. So here we are, as Ezra, as God people, God's people, hearing these words and hopefully being connected. And hopefully owning these things. And hopefully embracing them to the point that there is confession and repentance and a change. Repentance involves a change, right? Repentance calls for you to turn away from these habits and these sins. After considering this list, maybe we can wholeheartedly agree with Moses in Numbers 14, 18, where he says, The Lord is slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression. 
See, God's mercy toward Israel and us is a powerful illustration of 2 Peter 3, 9, where he says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promises, some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. I don't know about you in this room, but I need that word patience from the people in my life. And we see God being uh, Peter saying that God toward us is patient. Not wishing that any should perish, that all should come to repentance. Today, in this room, there are a few of you maybe that are on the edge, on the edge of trusting Christ as your Savior. You are called right now to repent and to say, hey, I embrace this patience you have for me. I don't want to perish. I want to have a relationship with you. And you can embrace this call to repentance. But for us, maybe for you that are believers in this room, maybe you can take some of these instructions here, maybe even take a picture of this to discuss with your small group this week, some habits that we would do well to adopt in light of what Ezra is saying. Like Ezra, we should study God's Word and watch Him reveal Himself through it. We also then can ask, who am I in light of this? And then after that, we can respond by asking, what needs to change? And then maybe we should have added forth, how am I going to do it? Go ahead and practice it. Oftentimes, we can be good at reading God's Word. I mean, you're here in this room today. You can be good at hearing God's Word. You can be good at, at even maybe teaching others. But it doesn't really impact you enough to change them. And this is what we're called to do here in looking at Ezra. So we've seen the sin exposed and Ezra's response. As we wrap it up, look at Ezra's example and the people's response. Let's look at chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and confessed, weeping and falling face down before the house of God, the extremely large assembly of Israelite men, women, and children gathered around. The people also wept bitterly. Then Shechaniah, son of Jehiel, and Elamite responded to Ezra. We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying far away from us and other peoples, but there is still hope for Israel in spite of this. Let us therefore make a covenant before our God to send away all the far wives and children according to the counsel of my Lord and those who tremble at the command of our God. Let it be done according to the law. Get up, for this matter is your responsibility, and we support you. Be strong and take action. And Ezra got up and made the leading priests and Levites and all Israel take an oath that they would have been said, so they took an oath. So as we look into this, this is kind of where it gets a little tricky, a little difficult in this passage, because there's a call for these women and these children who have married uh, these Israelite men to be sent away. It's a tough passage to deal with. We can identify a few things. First of all, the sin, again, started with leadership. But the great thing is the confession of repentance started with leadership as well. The leadership was willing to acknowledge their sin. And I love this. It's kind of ironic that I'm actually preaching on this because Ezra didn't preach to the people. Ezra did not stand up with a scroll and read it and show them all these things. What did Ezra do? He just bowed down on his face and laid out before God and just started repenting. And look at what happened. Men, women, children just gathered around him and joined him in repentance. 
confession. This is a really powerful thing that shows us, look, confession and repentance is powerful. And as a leader, whether it's in your family or in a small group or at work or with your friends or whoever it is, you can take the lead and confess and repent. And it's something like a snowball that takes place where it just starts to roll and gets bigger and bigger. And here we see this response. So maybe I can ask you, how well do you practice confession and repentance? Where do you leave room for this in your life? We're so busy. We often don't even take time to really consider how can I properly confess to this person what I've been doing? How can I model to my family this confession? But we can't get around verse 3. This command to send the foreign wives and children away. Although I can't explain the expertise on this at all, I did learn a lot. From studying this and trusted sources on this, uh, there's a few things we can highlight on this. First of all, the marriages at the outset went against the law of God and went against God's decrees. So, technically, if you want to get technical, they weren't recognized as true marriages. These weren't true godly marriages sanctified by God. So, they weren't recognized as that. It's also important to keep in mind that this is a remnant. It's a small minority group living among an inch to inch the entire country, as the scripture says, of wickedness. And so a harsh ruling had to take place. There had to be this harsh ruling. As far as the children are concerned, there's really no way around it. The sin of adults affects children in absolutely horrific ways. It's not just in Ezra's day, it's today. Adults cause children to suffer because of their selfishness, because of their sin. And it's no different here. Because of what they chose to do to sin against God, these children are sent away from their fathers. And even for me as a youth pastor watching this for over 20 years, watching marriages be ripped apart by selfishness, I know there's situations where there's, whether it's abuse or, or infidelity and things like that that are difficult, but then there's also marriages that crumble because of selfishness or because that person isn't living up to their standards. And we see this happen, and the children suffer. And the children are in pain because of sin. This is no different. And although not clearly stated in this text, we do have some hopeful insight that many of the marriages could potentially stay intact. Ezra 6.21 says this, when referring to returned exiles taking the Passover, it was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated himself from the uncleanness of the people of the land to worship the Lord and God of Israel. Commentator Wallace Ben says the wives who wish to renounce false worship and be faithful only to God will presumably be allowed to remain maintain families of worship and follow the only God. This isn't in this text, but it can possibly be understood through seeing the entire culture and the context here. But again, that's up for debate because we're not left with the details. We're just left with a list of these men sent against God at the end of the chapter. So unfortunately, we'll go on in Nehemiah and see that even this harsh ruling didn't change hearts. They continued to follow after selfishness. But we can highlight a few things as we wrap up. Verse 4, as has been called to be strong and take action to remind 
himself this decision and spent the night fasting and spent the night praying the entire night. Kind of reminds me to really consider how I fast when I do fast. Because oftentimes we approach fasting to get something from God, like give me an answer or bring relief even for Ukraine, maybe stop this war. But often in the scripture, fasting actually is, is meant to lead us to repentance. And here in this passage, that's what Ezra is modeling. Verse 8 shows the seriousness of the commands to do this. Uh, he basically says, if you don't do this and follow this command, you will be cut off from society. You will lose your possessions, and for us, that's bad enough, right? Lose my house, lose my car, whatever it is, lose all this stuff. But in essence, what they're saying even further is they would be ostracized from Israelite community. And they wouldn't be able to make sacrifices for sin anymore. They'd be kicked out of the temple. So this is even deeper than just mere earthly possessions. And then verse 12 to 17, they go into the description of how this will be carried out. It reminds me of what I learned recently over the last few years in Rwanda. Rwanda went through a horrible genocide in 1994. Over a million people were wiped from the face of the earth. It was a horrible thing. And in the process, over 130,000 people were accused of war crimes, and they had to be tried. And it was estimated with uh, Rwanda's existing court system that it would take over 200 years to try all these people. Like, what do you do? They need to have justice for those that were murdered and brutally beaten and torn from their families. And so what they went to is back to an old cultural... Uh, the Chacha court that they had back in the day before they were westernized. And what happened, what would happen is these villages would have their own judge and their own jury, and they basically sent them all back and they, they declared the Chacha court all over the nation. And they were able to try these cases in a matter of a few years instead of 200 years. It seems that maybe, I don't know, the Rwandans maybe learned this from this passage because that's what happens here. They're all called to go back to where they were from, to back to these areas, and actually have a court there, and then you get this huge list. Verse 17, the first day of the first month, they had all dealt with all the men who were married for them, with them and then they list the following. So it's just kind of horrible. The next uh, 20 verses or 30 verses might have your name on it. And here it is. The ladies are out there. So what can we learn from this last part of this, or even this whole passage, I think, as we think about this and we wrap this up? Throughout the Old Testament, there are many types of pictures that point to Christ. Ezra is one of them. We see his intense compassion for the people, his love for the people, his passionate call to repentance. And just like Christ, we actually see his beard ripped out, his hair ripped out. We see his clothes torn, his rejection here, his, 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 his posture before God. So I don't know about you, but I'm prone to sin, and I need regular times of repentance. So what I'm going to ask you to do is I'm going to ask you to stand with me. And I want to have this time in this song as we sing it. Be a time of repentance. So if you can stick around, this is the most important time of our time together today. 
to be horrible if we just learned about repentance and learned about confession and we actually didn't do it. So I asked Mark to play this song because it really illustrates God's grace in our lives and helps us see who we are in relation to Him. So what I ask of you now is to let this room be a, a room full of repentant, confessing believers. Or maybe even, like we've said already, maybe someone who needs to repent for the first time and trust Jesus as their Savior. Maybe your physical body, like Ezra, needs to have a different position to it. Although not magical, it does represent your submission to God. And maybe you need to come down and kneel before God. We're all family here. You won't look bad in front of us. This is a safe place to repent and confess. Maybe you need prayer and some of us, including myself, to pray with you today. So let's confess and repent this morning.